Happy Friday, developers! Today is October 20th, 2023, and welcome back to our Roundup episode where you can catch up on episodes you missed and get a quick rundown of the past two weeks from Podrocket. So, let's get started! Last week, we had Eric Rasmussen, creator of Redux Form and Final Form, back on to talk about how developers can get started in SolidJS. In this clip, Eric talks about the differences between React and Solid. What's happening in Solid that is so different than React? The component in React is designed to re-render a bunch of times, to be called a bunch of times, and every time it gets given some props and potentially has some internal state and then spits out a bunch of JSX. And of course, JSX can call other components and other things, but that's the general gist. Like the whole brilliance of React was, hey, anytime anything changes, just redraw everything. And don't worry about speed. We're going to handle the speed with this VDOM, virtual DOM magic behind the scenes. And when React first came out, everyone was all upset about their HTML and their, and their JavaScript. And no one realized that their real genius was the virtual DOM. And then as the dust settled, we realized, oh wait, this virtual DOM thing is magical, that we can render, just render and forget. Like, we don't care how many times we re-render. And that is amazing for 99% of components. It's just crazy that you can think about, here's my state, here's the HTML that, that I want to be shown, and that, that's good to go. However, there you run into the 1%, of your components where re-rendering can cause trouble and you can run into performance issues. And what Solid does differently is that the component only runs once. What is the component function? And for React developers, that's the hardest hurdle to get over mentally because we're so used to being able to, oh, no matter what prop changes, this is going to run a bunch of times. No. In Solid, no. Solid does this magic, and by magic it breaks the just JavaScript ideal, that React notices which bits of DOM depend on which bits of data, and when those data change, it updates only that bit of the DOM, and that's how it gets away with not having a virtual DOM at all, which makes it super fast. I was told, though, that given React has the Atom as its logo, that that was what React does. (laughs) It, It only computes, it only diffs of the virtual DOM against the real DOM and then applies a minimal subset of changes to the real DOM. That's the plan, yes. And that's what it does, but it still has to do that diff. Ah, and the diff is the expensive piece that Solid doesn't have to do. Solid makes a note of this is the div that depends on this data and then when that data changes, it only changes that that div in the DOM. As opposed to, here's the whole app again in the virtual DOM and then you have to calculate, oh, this is the bit that changed. Next, we welcome back Sean Wang, also known as Swix, to talk about what he sees is the next evolution of software and what it means to be an AI engineer. Here, Sean talks about the differences between software 1.0, 2.0, and 3.0. Welcome back, Sean. Hey, thanks for having me back. Good to see you again. 
I'm really excited to get into your talk, especially because we've already talked a little bit about AI and, and adjacent things. But before we get into it, let's zero in on scope a little bit and talk about your talk, Software 3.0 and the Emerging AI Developer Landscape. I've seen the term Web 1.0, Web 2.0, Web 3. Also, like in outside of Web Dev, there's like Industry 3.0 is a trending term. I'm curious, Software 3.0, where does that come from? It doesn't have any lineage whatsoever with Web3. <laughs> so that's a very unfortunate comparison there, I think. But the origin actually comes from a very influential article created by Andre Karpathy about six years ago called Software 2.0. And he was basically trying to articulate the difference between hand-coded software, where we write every single line of code ourselves with like if statements, loops, and whatever, traditional coding paradigms, and then machine-learned code, where you write the layers of what the machine learning model should do, like the architecture of the model, and then you just run it through a lot of data in order to achieve weights. And the weights themselves are the encoding of the knowledge. So he was trying to articulate that difference that the possible space of problems you can tackle with software 1.0 is the problems that you can kind of code for deterministically. And the possible space of problems that you can address with software 2.0 is the stuff that you can address it by machine learning. For example, computer vision and voice recognition. It's that stuff that you'll never be able to hand code by yourself. And I think there's the fundamental uh, realization that a lot of people should have with regards to how they write software 1.0 code, which is a lot of the times, like, what do you do as a programmer, as a software engineer, right? Like, you write some functioning app, and then you send it out there, you look at your analytics and your metrics and all that, and then you adjust by adding in some features and adding in some if statements and all that from learning. And essentially what software 2.0 is accelerated learning from data, whereas in software 1.0, we learn from data through humans in the loop and designers in the loop. So I think that's a really fundamental realization there that once you realize that sometimes you are just a very slow machine learning model and you're writing all these algorithms, but yourself, uh, sometimes you can just kind of machine learn the algorithms rather than writing them yourself. So how do you proceed from software 2.0 to 3.0 is the arrival of foundation models. And that's the change that has happened more or less in the last three years, enabled by the transformer architecture becoming a thing, which enables deep learning that's parallelizable at massive scale, and obviously a lot more money and GPUs and data thrown at this problem. So now foundation models mean that you do not have to collect a whole bunch of data to create models before you start delivering ML products into production. You can just grab one off the shelf, whether it's open source or closed source, it doesn't really matter. You take a foundation model and then you put that into production and then you can start collecting data to fine tune them if you want to. But otherwise the time to MVP of an AI product has significantly by reduced by orders of magnitude in the software 3.0 paradigm. So hopefully that transition is clear. Software 1.0 is hand-coded code. Software 2.0 is machine-learned code on your data that you collect. And software 3.0 is just off-the-shelf models when you don't even have to collect the data. And finally, Brad Frost, design system consultant, talks about the past, present, and future of design systems, including his design methodology, Atomic Design, which he explains in this next clip. As you're like, oh yeah, designers actually, believe it or not, work with other designers. <laughs> and it's important for them to kind of share the same assets. So things like libraries and design tools it like became like a really important piece of this puzzle because up until then it was just kind of like this 
vague, either a brand style guide, or you might have a UI like sticker sheet, but it wasn't connected in any meaningful way. So, so that evolution on the sort of design track has been important. But then similarly, like on the dev side, we have this evolution from, again, GeoCities, just HTML, really nothing. And it was like kind of in the like 2010-ish era that sort of this idea of even a pattern library kind of came to be. Tools like Bootstrap started to emerge where it's just, oh, here's this thing. You check this CSS file in the head of your document, match these classes, and you get this look and feel for these user interface components. But again, like not not terribly like connected. It was like, you know, kind of pseudo connected a little bit. And so it's really with the emergence of things like ES modules and stuff like that that you're actually able to bundle up reusable bits of code and share them and manage them in, in that way. So what we've seen over the last number of years is this kind of ES modules, and then, of course, the explosive rise of, of frameworks and stuff like React becoming super popular where you're able to actually, oh, we can create a React-based component library, and then all of our different React applications can consume that. Similar, in, you know, whether it's Angular or Vue, doesn't really matter. It's the same sort of concept. And then sort of what we've been seeing over the last, like, last four, almost five years is we've increasingly been building design systems and helping our clients build design systems using web components, right? So like web components as a standard part of the web platform, interoperable with React, Angular, Vue, WordPress, Drupal, the rest of them, right? So so what we've seen is this kind of evolution of the technology getting a lot closer to, uh, yes, we could actually create a true source of truth for our front of the front end code, right? The, the HTML, CSS, presentational JavaScript, like kind of intentionally dumb UI building blocks, but that could travel to all these different places so that the downstream teams don't have to worry about corner radius or, you know, is, the, is this the right hex value for this button? You're just able to literally import these components and get to work kind of wiring them up and, and breathing life into them. Yeah, yeah. We, we, I think we talked about this quite a bit last time, kind of just like design systems role in bridging kind of all three of those gaps where there was like disparity on the design side and tools, disparity on the product side and tools, and the problem like bridging that gap between product and like the design system itself, or I guess product and design itself, the system kind of being the answer that is, or the tool or maybe the mental framework that is trying to solve that problem. But again, we could rehash that all day for sure. So let's like get into the meat a little bit more here. What is atomic design and how does it help people think about this? So atomic design is really a mental model for thinking about user interfaces in this kind of interconnected hierarchical way. And it was really, again, those 10 years ago, I mentioned Bootstrap, it was kind of born in that era where it's just like this notion of kind of just vaguely components are a thing, or it's like, here's a button, or here's like an alert, or whatever, was just kind of starting to emerge. And it's like, you could take these pieces, these components, and build things out of them. And that continues to be true today. But it's not particularly nuanced. And what I was doing those 10 years ago was like kind of stratifying it, kind of putting a finer point on it, adding some nuance where it's just, okay, if we were to like really explode 
any user interface into its atomic pieces, you're going to end up with these very like low-level primitive things, right? A radio button, you know, a badge, a text node, an input field, or something like that. And all of those things have their own properties. They, you know, have certain behaviors. You, you need to sort of consider, even for that sort of small of a thing, there's a lot going on in, in just the lowly checkbox, right? Is it checked? Is it unchecked? Is it indeterminate? Like all of, all of that stuff. But then, they're, but they're not terribly practical on their own, right? So it's like putting those atomic bits, those atoms together into these relatively simple components that I call molecules. Now, all of a sudden, you have like a text field that's comprised of, you know, a label, an input field, maybe some helper text or some sort of like required icon or something like that. But now all of that takes on its own unique properties the same way that in chemistry, two hydrogen atoms and an oxygen atom come together and take on their unique kind of water molecule properties. And then kind of from there, then it grows in complexity. Those molecules get combined together further into, say, like a whatever, a contact form or something like that. First name, last name, email, text area, whatever. Here's now this discrete chunk of interface that could be dropped in wherever that's needed. And then from there, those more complex organisms, what I call them, get combined into a page layout at a template level where you're kind of like having all these things hang together. And then the page level, which is the kind of final form of all of this stuff, is where we kind of pour real content, real scenarios, real state into a given sort of template, right? So here's what the homepage template looks like. Here's what that hero looks like with this specific uh, photo applied to it. Here's what it looks like with this specific tagline. Here's what it looks like with this specific CTA. Or here's what it looks like if you're a user versus an admin, right? Here's like all those, like all that sort of different variants that, that sort of comes into play when you're making digital products that, you know, whether it's user-generated content or whether it's just all the complexities that kind of come with the software landscape, your design system that sort of powers that whole experience needs to be able to account for all of that complexity, right? Like it's, you can't just be like, oh, here's this accordion, but it doesn't take into account the need for, oh, well, we need to slot in a badge for this specific thing. So it's, it, what atomic design does is it, it really kind of paints that picture of like how that lowly checkbox or radio button actually finds its way into like real products that real human beings use. And that's it for today, Friday, October 20th. You can check out the full episodes linked in our show notes or on our feed. And if you like what you hear, follow PodRocket for more great web development content. See you at the next roundup. This episode was brought to you by LogRocket. Try it for free at logrocket.com. Thank you.